hppodcraft.com. The lashed-together framework of sticks jutted from a small cairn alongside the stream. Colin Leverett studied it in perplexment. Half a dozen odd lengths of branch, wired together at cross angles for no fathomable purpose. It reminded him unpleasantly of some bizarre crucifix, and he wondered what might lie beneath the cairn. It was the spring of 1942, the kind of day to make the war seem distant and unreal, although the draft notice waited on his desk. In a few days, Leverett would lock his rural studio, wonder if he would see it again, be able to use its pens and brushes and carving tools when he did return. It was goodbye to the woods and streams of upstate New York, too. No fly rods, no tramps through the countryside in Hitler's Europe. No point in putting off fishing that trout stream he had driven past once, exploring backroads of the Otsilik Valley. The story asserts that there's no point in putting off that fishing trip, but then goes on to make a very good point for why Colin Leverett should have avoided this particular (laughs) trout stream. And we're going to get to that point pretty quickly here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're sticking our voices into your ears on HPPodcraft.com and Patreon. Yuck. This week, we're tackling a story folks have wanted us to do for quite some time called Sticks by Carl Edward Wagner. Where did you find this story? Uh, well, I actually found it. I was looking around for it because I'd heard it was good and it was difficult to find online, but I finally found it in The Book of Cthulhu 2, which is edited by a friend of the show, Ross E. Lockhart. It's a really pretty hey, book. I got the uh, Kindle edition. I felt foolish I didn't know it was there because I actually have the soft cover of the first Book of Cthulhu. You have that mm-hmm. too, don't you? It's a really great yeah. book. But I grabbed this one on Kindle, like I said. I've wanted to do this story forever. It's just that often when we're planning. We'll go for the stuff that's free online first, for obvious reasons. Sure. But we've been hearing about this one for years. Here was a message from listener Alan Ricks I got last year around Halloween time. It said, hey, guys, I was thinking of what stories you have and have not done, and I can't remember if you've ever done a Carl Edgar Wagner story. He is probably the most noteworthy weird fiction author you haven't covered, and having passed away in 1994, his mythos stories are right up your alley. Now he is remembered more for his sword and sorcery cane cycle, but he had many mythos stories as well and was instrumental in editing and guiding both the weird fiction and sci-fi literary traditions for decades. The one that springs to mind most readily is Styx, a staple of many Cthulhu mythos collections and the obvious basis of the Blair Witch. In it, you have many Lovecraft connections, including a nod to either Lovecraft himself or August Erleth, depending on who you associate the narrator with. It's a perfect fit for you. If you've already done it in your 400-plus episodes and I'm forgetting, then I blame increasing age. Cheers. So, no, we're doing it now. And I also wanted to thank Cole Donovan, who sent me a PDF of the story. I'm not sure what anthology grabbed it from. It was a scan, but that was great because then we could share that between ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, thank you, Cole. That was really nice of you to do. There's a bio on on Wagner in that as well, right? Dr. Carl Edward Wagner is a physician with a deep misunderstanding of human nature and human fears. <laughs> I read that line and I thought, is that a typo? Or yeah. are they trying to be funny? Like I, I thought the same thing, but yeah. the deep misunderstanding of human nature and fears is about the fact that Wagner studied to be a psychiatrist. He hated his job and he got out of it very quickly. I didn't know. I thought either it was a misprint for real, like yeah. they meant to say a deep understanding or they were, it was one of those 
horror comic book kind of punny yeah. things. But yeah. it didn't really work. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was confusing when I read it, too. Yeah. It also says, a noted authority on fantasy, he writes a monthly column for fantasy newsletters and edits Carcosa Press, one of the leading small presses in the field. Sticks is arguably the finest short story and won the British August Erleth Fantasy Award in 1974. Now, just quick aside, mm-hmm. there's a British August Derleth Fantasy Award? <laughs> yeah, it's like the BAFTAs. The real August Derleth Fantasy Award is the one with the big red carpet and, you know. Wow. And the Turkish uh, August Derleth Fantasy Award is nuts. His best-known character he created is Kane, which is the main character in about three novels and a few short story collections. Kane was an immortal warrior. Mm-hmm. Maybe the biblical Kane who was cursed to walk the earth until he is done in by the violence he created. Hmm. But unfortunately, Wagner died in 1994 due to complications from alcoholism, and he was only 48 years old. Oh, God, I don't need to hear that. No. You know what I was happy to hear was the voice of our reader. Yes, that was Eric Peabody returning to the show. It was. It's so great to have him back. I've actually been working with Eric. He's the man behind Viking Guitar, both the the awesome video game metal band and Hmm. the audio production studio. He mixed and mastered my upcoming album, so you heard his work on our 500th episode last month. Yes. And it's crazy. All of this Pitch Black Manor material I actually played on a ukulele, and the drums <laughs> the drums are all just Lyle Erickson slapping his belly in the bathtub. <laughs> he mic'd that up, and somehow Eric turned it into that epic song you heard last month. Wow. So that's how talented yeah. he is. He's got the goods. I, I know. I'm actually going to play another Pitch Black Manor song as an outro today, so you can hear a little bit more of Eric's work uh, when you listen to that. Let's get into it. Yeah. It begins with this guy, Colin Levert, who's an artist and he's going out into the woods to have a little fishing day before he shipped off to World War II. His opening situation gripped me right away. I mean, that happened in those first couple paragraphs, that last little field trip before he goes off to war, and the the fact that he's wondering if he'll, he'll ever see his studio again. Just that transitional moment where you're taking things in because you might lose them forever really gripped me with this sense of melancholy right off the bat. Yeah. So he decides to investigate this uh, trout stream he's seen before. He's on the boonies, and the area is called Man Brook. But that's what he likes, being out by, out by himself in the rough. Mm-hmm. And he's got his rod and his reel, and he has a, a frying pan tied to his belt so he can cook whatever he catches out there. In this particular adventure, the frying pan is the first melee weapon you're given. <laughs> it's the default. You know, most people ditch it. They go right for the enchanted dagger that's in the outhouse, just off to the right of the stream. There's a few gold coins and a loaf of bread in there, too. But Leverett doesn't know that it's there. This is his first life. We're getting the benefit of this walkthrough. As he's making his way to this fishing spot that he's found on some old geographical surveys, he comes across these weird wooden things. They're wooden boards nailed to sticks, and they're put up all around. And he also finds lattices made with these sticks, and they're newish not some ancient thing. Supposedly, the first season of True Detective took their ideas from this story for the stick things that they had the Yellow King cultist make. Yeah, all I could think about was Blair Witch. It's such an effective horror strategy doing this. You know, I'm looking at this thing. Clearly, there was intent in making it, but it's not functional, which means it's either cultural, like a piece of art, or it's devotional. But I don't recognize it, and that scares me. And I feel like that's a primal fear, actually. Because, like, dealing with abstract iconography seems like that should be intellectual horror, but it's not. Mm. 
it gets you in that caveman brain because basically what it's speaking to is this belongs to another tribe. I know that it's some kind of iconography that denotes who they are. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it means, though, which means somebody's a, that's different than me. You know what I mean? When we yeah. talked about <laughs> the primal world, you have to be suspicious of everybody that's not your family. And I think that that's what this is tickling at. You don't have yeah. to know any witch legends or any legends at all to be freaked out by some sticks and string all wound up together. And that's kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. He writes, this didn't make sense. A prank? But at whom? A child's game? No, the arrangement was far too sophisticated. The calculated angles and lengths, the designed intricacy of the maddeningly inexplicable devices, there was something distinctly uncomfortable about their effect. And I think that's what he's trying to get at. And these things are everywhere. They're all over the place. They're not just one or two of them. Somebody's put a lot of work into these things. And there were variations. That's that's a little unsettling, too. It's not like, you know, in the movie where they show the guy in the madhouse and he's drawn crosses everywhere. Yeah. These things are all, they're, they're all different, right? Yeah. Well, some of them are just a couple of sticks. Some of them are really complicated. And here's yeah. my favorite bit of writing in the story. Basically, the uh, the delicious reduction of all that crap I was talking about a second ago. It says, it should have been ridiculous. It wasn't. <laughs> That's good writing. Yeah, the, yeah, it's really good writing. He continues on to the fishing spot and comes across the ruins of a house. It was an unlovely colonial farmhouse, box-shaped and gamble-roofed, fast falling into the ground. Sounds very Lovecraftian. Yeah, Gambrel Roof. That's very Lovecraftian. In fact, I actually found out, I don't know if you know this, but The no. Gambler by Kenny Rogers. Uh-huh. That song actually came out. It was a misprint originally for <laughs> another song he wrote called The Gambrel, which was about how to build a Gambrel Roof. You know, you gotta know when to slope them. It was just like instructional for people. Oh. But he saw the misprint and he thought, oh man, that the gambler, that's kind of a better idea. So that's how we got that hit song. <laughs> Oh, Kenny Rogers always see an opportunity and mistakes. Yeah. Everything yeah. that he writes generally is topographical or architectural in nature. <laughs> Islands in the stream is, you know. True, yeah. yeah that's about how to build a dam. <laughs> the, the house is mostly covered with growth and the stick lattices are all around this place. He's fascinated by these things and he does a bunch of sketches of them in his sketchbook, which he, his, he always brings with him. He always has a sketchbook on him. Right. Levert decides he wants to go in this house. Levert, whose fascination for the macabre was evident in his art. So he's compelled to check out this creepy house because he's a creepy guy and you know you can't just leave a creepy house out in the woods. Exactly. You know? He goes in and he can tell that someone has been there somewhat recently. The house is full of these diagrams on the walls and it has these lattices in the inside. He gets in there and he does more sketches. It's the fact that somebody's been there recently that's scary, not necessarily the sticks. You know, what's somebody doing out here? This house has a huge base and big stairs that lead down into a cellar. It's like the house was built on the foundation of a much larger building. Built to last. He calls out to see if anybody's in the dwelling, but there's no answer. He's worried he might run into somebody in that cellar. And I love this bit. It occurred to him that virtually anything might transpire here, and no one in the world of 1942 would ever know. And that in itself was too great a fascination for one of Leverett's temperament. Carefully, he started down the cellar stairs. You know, I mean, I think it's important that it acknowledges going in that cellar would be really stupid. You know it. He knows it. But he's a creep. As you yeah. said, and he yeah, he's got a creeps creep. Be creeping. Uh, Lever decides he wants to go check out the cellar. It's huge but dark. Some light comes in from the outside, but not much. The cellar seems mostly empty, but there's a big stone slab, waist high, eight feet long, and he feels it in the darkness. And there's a groove along the edge, and then he touches something that feels like old leather, and then his wrist is suddenly grabbed. Yeah, that part scared the. Sh- 
out of me for real while I was reading it and that hasn't happened in a while in my head I thought this was still the evidence gathering stage you know not the encounter stage Leverett screamed and lunged away with frantic strength he was held fast but the object on the stone slab pulled upward a sickly beam of sunlight came down to touch one end of the slab it was enough As Leverett struggled backward and the thing that held him heaved up from the stone table, its face passed through the beam of light. It was a lich's face, desiccated flesh tight over its skull. Filthy strands of hair were matted over its scalp. Tattered lips were drawn away from broken, yellowed teeth, and, sunken in their sockets, eyes that should be dead were bright with hideous life. Leverett screamed again, desperate with fear. His free hand clawed the iron skillet tied to his belt. Ripping it loose, he smashed at the nightmarish face with all his strength. For one frozen instant of horror, the sunlight let him see the skillet crush through the mold-eaten forehead like an axe, cleaving the dry flesh and brittle bone. The grip on his wrist failed. The cadaverous face fell away, and the sight of its caved-in forehead and unblinking eyes from between which thick blood had begun to ooze would awaken Leverett from nightmare on countless nights. Wow. It's a lich. Yeah. Like full-on D&D lich. <laughs> and I was thinking, I go, well, that's that's a very d and I never hear that word outside of Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. And... I looked it up and this story came out the same year Dungeons and Dragons did, 1974. So I'm sure that maybe it was in the zeitgeist, the the idea of of liches or in the world of fantasy. I need to look do a little research into the lich and where that came from. Yeah, because it made me wonder, what what audience is he writing this for? I think it was published in a journal called Whispers. Mm. It would be an audience that would be a little sophisticated about horror terms, but he throws it out there as if you're expected to know what yeah. that is. And at a certain age, I might, I, I wasn't a D&D player. Well, again, mm-hmm. this is the same year that that came out, but I just wouldn't have known what that was. You can infer what it is, I think, pretty easily. Yeah. Well, he describes it, so now you're going to know what it is. So I guess it's okay that he throws out the, the term. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, hey, that skillet came in handy after all. It did. People are always going for that dagger, but in this case, it's brute force you want. Piercing doesn't do the trick, so this is better, oh, no. than, a, better than a knife. You need blunt blunt damage. <laughs> Piercing damage or slashing damage is not going to help you. You want yeah. it straight on blunt. He runs the heck out of there, keeps running until he gets tired, but then he was spurred to desperate energy by the memory of the footsteps that had stumbled up the cellar stairs behind him. <gasps> no, it's coming up the <laughs> stairs behind him. <laughs> So it's a pretty great opening chapter and a story in itself, really. Yeah, I feel like that this is two separate stories in a way. That one's the horror story, and now we're going to get to the Lovecraft part of it, where Hmm, it kind of satisfies those cravings. So chapter two picks up after the war. He's back, but of course he's changed by what he's seen in the war. Or the war is an excuse for what he saw before Mm -hmm. he went to war, the thing that we just uh, read about, although it's probably a combination of both. It says his fascination with the macabre had assumed a darker mood, a morbid obsession that his old acquaintances found disquieting. But it had been that kind of war. (laughs) (laughs) He did see some particularly brutal stuff. You know, it kind of tells you where he fought. But it says Leverett kept his own counsel and when he grimly recalled that creature he had struggled with in the abandoned cellar, he usually convinced himself it had only been a derelict, 
a crazy hermit whose appearance had been distorted by the poor light in his own imagination. I think that's the justification I would have made, too. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Some yeah. zombie creature being down there. No, no. way. Uh-uh. As a talented artist, his work gets bought up when he gets back. Publishers are hungry for his stuff, but he's having a hard time actually selling it because they find it too grotesque and messed up. He just gives up working for the pulps and he gets some work doing gallery pieces and commissions. His abstract sculptures are very popular. So chapter three picks up 25 years later. It's the early 70s. You and I are about to be born. The story doesn't really get into that for some reason. But no, I don't. It's out there. It avoids it. It's implied. Lever gets a letter from a publisher friend of his, Prescott Brandon. The name, I feel like it should be the other way around. It should be Brandon Prescott, but it's Prescott Brandon. This story sucks. He, <laughs> he does weird fiction stuff, and he wants Levert to do messed up drawings for his collection that he's putting together. He knows Levert's stuff is really out there, and he wants that. Would hope that you can startle fandom with some especially ghastly drawings for these. Something different from the hackneyed skulls and werewolves carting off half-dressed ladies. I was like, well, hey, now, let's not play down werewolves carrying off half-dressed ladies. That's Yeah, that's pretty great stuff. That's a classic. The collection is for the work of H. Kenneth Allard, an author Levert is really into. Brandon says that he can do whatever he wants with the illustrations, and that gets Levert super inspired. A lot of Allard's writing conjures up images of the stuff that he saw back at Man Brook 25 years earlier. Mm -hmm. He never went back to that place, but he still has his notebook from that day. And it makes him feel uneasy looking at that stuff, which he feels is perfect for this work. So he incorporates that into his illustrations. So when Brandon sees these illustrations, he's blown away. He wants to know about the inspiration for them, and Levert writes back to him and tells him that it's from an experience that he had years before, of course, leaving out the bit with the zombie lich thing. Brandon is impressed with this story, and he says he knows this guy, Dr. Steffroy, a historian and occult scholar who knows a lot about the area where this supposedly took place in. Mm -hmm. So he tells him that he forwarded Levert's letter to him and that maybe Dr. Steffroy can explain some of the imagery. The following week, Levert gets a letter from this Dr. Steffroy. The doctor is very keen on knowing where this place is and wonders if Levert could find it again after all these years. And he explains that in circa 1700 to 2000 BC, there was a bunch of European Bronze Age people that came to the Americas. Uh, This is suddenly a lot like the Liber story we did about Watts Towers, Terror from the Depths, you know? Yes. It was Mm -hmm. suddenly reminded me of that. He goes on to say that that big stones that Levert described sound very similar to the megalithic tombs of the Earth Mother worshippers that believed in the ability to gain immortality through human sacrifice and interment in these tombs. Hmm. He explains that they also seem to have been used by colonial witches that were driven up into upstate New York and into western Massachusetts. He says, of particular interest is the Shadrach, Ireland's Brethren of the New Light, who believed that the world was soon to be destroyed by sinister powers from the outside, and that they, the elect, would then attain physical immortality. The elect who died beforehand were to have their bodies preserved on tables of stone until the old ones came forth to return them to life. It's like, whoa, what is this strange Lovecraftian occult plan, you know? You're going to get physical immortality by being resurrected by these powers. But if you switch out the old one stuff, this is basically the plot of Christianity, isn't it? Isn't this what's going to happen to all of us? If you believe in God, then you get a life after you die. So it's really not that strange. When you reframe it that way, it makes perfect sense. He also relates. I didn't say it account- makes sense. I just mean it's a common idea. <laughs> he also relates an account from the mid 1800s of a farmhouse like the one he described that burned down and it had a, a bad reputation and lots of these stick things. 
these these, uh, sculptures that the people have made. Well, this freaks Levert out. All the distance that he had put behind himself and the self-doubt about what he saw down in that cellar, they're just gone now. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. Everything's making sense. He writes Stefroy back and he tells him that he's going to try and find where this place is in the spring. Yeah, which I didn't, I thought he would just avoid it. But then he actually does go try to find it. He goes looking for this place. It seems that there was some flooding that happened years ago Mm -hmm. to the point that the river is actually moved. It's not in the same place that it was before. So the house seems to be gone. And this makes Levert feel much better about things. He writes Stefroy about his situation and explains it. Stefroy writes back and confirms his account of the flooding. But more importantly, two nights prior, Prescott Brandon was brutally murdered in his office and the place was ransacked. Like so many of these stories, there's this creeping conspiracy. So we know Prescott had those illustrations since he was editing the collection of this author's work. Somebody mm-hmm. either wanted them or didn't want him to have them. Yeah, yeah. this is a lot like uh, the, the library stuff. So it says, police believe the killers were high on drugs from the mindless brutality of their crime. Listen, the answer's simple. They were high on drugs. <laughs> Stephanie writes... I had just received my copy of the third Allard volume, Unhallowed Places, a superbly designed book, and this tragedy becomes all the more insufferable with the realization that Scotty will give the world no more such treasures. Levert recalls that the last letter he received from Brandon said something about this guy, a Major George Leonard, who wanted to know about the sticks and where to find Leverett. Brandon didn't tell him. It's one thing to have somebody sniffing around who might be a cultist, but a major? You know, that's trouble. (laughs) Because that means he's got the backing of an organization, you know. Also, that's the guy who's like, we're probably going to weaponize whatever the story is about in the sequel. So I'm here to set that up now. (laughs) You know? Mm. (laughs) See, I thought it was going in a completely different direction. What's that? Well, because it was the military. Yeah. So the military's involved. Maybe somebody in a high position in the government that we think is dead, but is not actually dead. And that we were going to find out in the end that it was actually Abraham Lincoln was a lich. Oh, yeah. right. And yeah. the sticks are meant to represent his log cabins. Exactly. <laughs> oh, God, chills. <laughs> so chapter six, we have a pale stranger show up at Levert's studio. Dark suit, thinning hair, black gloves and dark glasses. Not at all suspect. He introduces himself as <laughs> Dana Allard. Nephew of the writer H. Kenneth Allard, the writer who Levert did all the drawings for. He says that his late uncle left him all this stuff, old manuscripts that were never published before, and he wants to publish them with Levert's illustrations to do you know new stuff. He wants to pick up where Brandon left off, and he shows Levert the manuscript pages, and Levert can tell that they're genuine from the handwriting and from the style of prose. So he's super jazzed about working on it. You know, I kind of feel stupid that you were like, oh, I wonder if there's anything amiss here. I I was surprised this new character showed up, but I didn't suspect him too much. I thought maybe this was the major that was already (laughs) like I thought I thought maybe that's why they set that up. But I I actually think he threw the major in there to throw me off. Yeah. So that I didn't suspect. But did you know what, know what, what, what was up with this guy? Well, I didn't know exactly what was up with this guy, but I knew he was not on the up and up. Yeah, I, I suspected right away. suspected that he wasn't on the up and up. But I didn't yeah. know how he was going to play into things. So he asked Levert if he can see the original sketchbook of the sticks, and Levert happily shows Allard. Allard mentions that things like this are mentioned in the manuscript that H. Allard wrote. So what a strange coincidence. Hmm. The book is going to be called Dwellers in the Earth. 
So that night, Lovett has a dream about going through space and then seeing these stick lattices and he finds himself underground, crawling on his belly through a dark tunnel. He crawls out into a large monolithic chamber. Others come out slouching, vaguely human in tattered clothes, and one figure comes towards him and grabs him by the wrist, just like he was grabbed by the wrist uh. many years ago. And he doesn't resist as it takes him to this stone table. And he looks into the face of the person guiding him, and it is the smashed-in face of the lich he saw all those years ago, and he wakes up screaming. I was going to say that the only thing I didn't like in this story were the, the dream sequences, but actually, when you just described it, that was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I liked I liked all the story. It's, it's great stuff. It could just be my mind craving distraction because I'm still freaked out by that Abraham Lincoln story <laughs> that you told me. <laughs> I don't blame you, dude. I'm afraid that I, I can't I, use pennies anymore. <laughs> I think I think Wagner really misstepped on this story. I do, too. Got close. He got real he got close. close. He, did. He, got, he got really close. Lever blames these dreams on his hard work <laughs> on the book. He thinks, you know what? I just better get get done with it. So he, he goes back and works hard on this novel. Weeks pass, mm-hmm. Leverett loses a bunch of weight. He's so engrossed at his work. He gets a letter from Steffroy uh, stating that he's discovered one of these megalithic sites, but it's on a private land owned by a very powerful local family uh, and he comes across it while researching some 17th century sorceress family that lived in the area <laughs> supposedly it had an underground chamber that was used for foul practices Defroy tells him that he's going to sneak in and check it out but he's already <laughs> made some preliminary checking around the area and he found sticks he's found mm-hmm. he's found these lattices in that area just like mm-hmm. he described and i was thinking this guy's an idiot what do you mean by sneaking in there well, just that he's messing with it because obviously people are making these things now. Whether yes. or not there's any supernatural aspect to, to it, you know, who cares? Mm. There, there's a cult of some kind. Like there's people out there making this stuff and they won't want, they don't want them on the land and they're attached to a powerful family. And all these things that he's reading, it sounds like a cult. Whether or not there's any supernatural part to it, who cares? Cultists are potentially really dangerous people. Yeah. And Steffroy is just not, you know, like, oh, no, I'm just going to go sneak on there and check it out. That's pretty dumb. What might fix this is if this wealthy, powerful family were the Kennedys, and then everything you said about Lincoln was in here, too. It makes perfect sense. Because you know how there's that connection between Kennedy and Lincoln. Yeah. Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy, and Kennedy's secretary was named Lincoln. Yeah, because they're all sorcerers. Exactly. Second point, he talks about the underground (laughs) chamber that was used for foul practices. Uh-huh. And if you want to know how that's constructed, all you have to do is go back and listen to Kenny Rogers' first draft of Lady, <laughs> which actually was about how to build an underground cellar. Oh, man. Became We're really making connections in this episode. I'm, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. So Leverett is worried about this, but he hopes that the whole thing is just some kind of hoax. Because obviously he knows about the supernatural aspects of it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for him, his nightmares continue. That night he dreams he's in this chamber again, but this time there's a man tied to the table. It was a stoutly built man, white hair disheveled, flesh gouged and filthy. Recognition seemed to burst over the contorted features, and he wondered if he should know the man. But now the lich with the caved-in skull was whispering in his ear, and he tried not to think of the unclean things that peered from that cloven brow, and instead took the bronze knife from the skeletal hand and raised the knife high, and because he could not scream and awaken, did with the knife as the tattered priest had whispered. 
And when, after an interval of unholy madness, he at last did awaken, the stickiness that covered him was not cold sweat, nor was it nightmare the half-devoured heart he clutched in one fist. Oh, that is, that's gross. You woke up with a heart in his hand? Yes, and he was eating it. Oh, that is freaky. But also, I want to point out, white hair disheveled? Yeah. Who else has white hair? Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers. Dude, I think we stumbled on something here. He was down there trying to study the cellar. Yeah. So he came and ripped his heart out. That's why the song evolved into Lady. It became about getting his heart ripped out. It all makes sense now. You know, there's always that I was dreaming of eating marshmallows and I woke up and I was eating my pillow. Yeah. Like here he's dreaming about eating a heart and he wakes up and he's eating a heart. (laughs) It's kind of shocking as a result, you know? Yeah. You think, oh, oh, my feet are dirty or it's going to be something like that. But no, it's a... He's covered in blood and has a half-eaten heart. Like, wow. That's, it's really good stuff. I, yeah, I know we're being silly with it, but no, no, the story no, no. itself it's, is the great. The story is great. So he scrubs himself raw in the shower, wishing that he could vomit. He says he disposed of the shredded lump of flesh, which I imagine means he put it in the garbage, but he's not specific. So I just no. imagine he ran to that shower so fast he just dropped it in the cup with the toothbrushes or something. <laughs> that heart's out there in the bathroom somewhere. He hears on the radio that Dr. Stefroy was found crushed beneath a fallen granite slab near Waitley, which was that place that he mm-hmm. was looking at. Levert is able to pull himself together and he drives to Dr. Allard's old stone house. Oh, no. <laughs> Dana is pleased to see him and he tells him that the books are finished. And that he has them right there. And Leverett says to Dana, burn them all. They killed Scotty. They killed Stefroy. They're on to me and they'll kill you if you release this book. Dana tries to calm him and he tells him to come down in the cellar, see the books. It's this large stone cellar. Dana picks up one of the books. He signs it and tells Leverett that he was right about the glyphics. He's like, what? What's going on? And then he looks at the signature and the signature is that of H. Kenneth Allard. Allard was speaking. Leverett saw places where the hastily applied, flesh-toned makeup didn't quite conceal what lay beneath. Glyphics symbolic of alien dimensions, inexplicable to the human mind, but essential fragments of an evocation so unthinkably vast that the pentagram, if you will, is miles across. Once before we tried, but your iron weapon destroyed part of Althal's brain. He erred at the last instant, almost annihilating us all. Althal had been formulating the evocation since he fled the advance of iron four millennia past. Then you reappeared, Colin Leverett, you with your artist's knowledge and diagrams of Althal's symbols. And now a thousand new minds will read the evocation you have returned to us, unite with our minds as we stand in the hidden places and the great old ones will come forth from the earth, and we, the dead who have steadfastly served them, shall be masters of the living. Leverett turned to run, but now they were creeping forth from the shadows of the cellar as massive flagstones slid back to reveal the tunnels beyond. He began to scream as Althal came to lead him away, but he could not awaken could only follow. Yeah. Again, he tricked you. He thought that the book was was what they were trying to hide, but it wasn't. They're not, they're not trying to hide it. They wanted to get it out there. Yeah. So that because people see it and then they're going to start thinking about it and it's going to open up their minds to it and then the great old ones will come back. 
That's cool. That's super cool. What a great story. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Really good writing, too. So wait, is are these liches vulnerable then to iron? Is that what it's saying? In this story, they are, yeah. Oh, you know better in D&D? Well, in D&D, they're not. I mean, in D&D, they're just zombie dudes, and they're usually powerful wizards that want to be immortal and then make themselves as liches so they can live forever. But, of course, they're like horrible zombie creatures. Oh, but that's kind of what this is. Yeah, I, I love it. I think it's great. It's one of the more exciting stories that I've read, and I want to check out more of Wagner's stuff. Yeah, it was a great kickoff to the summer. We're kind of just doing a potpourri this month. Of mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're, we're calling it June Companions uh, for no <laughs> other reason than that. That's kind of funny. But we might do some companion-based <laughs> stories. Next week, we're going to do The Velt by Ray Bradbury. It's a classic. Give it a spin. I want to once again thank our reader this week, Eric Peabody. Thank you, Eric. Again, Eric is at vikingguitar.com for all your audio needs. He's in the process of mixing and mastering Pitch Black Manor's new album, Monster Classics, which will drop in July. I'm going to premiere a track from the album right now, but to ramp up, I want to thank some patrons. I'd like to thank Garrett DeBaker. I'd like to thank Robbie H. Chris Lynn, thank you. Jared L. Dietz, thank you so much. Stanislav Andreev, thank you. Wes Fournier, thank you so much. Nathaniel Dory, thank you so much. Robert Bloomfield, you are awesome. Thank you, Hannah Gunson McComb. And Ben F., the F stands for fabulous. Thanks for being part of the team. Thank you all for being part of the team. It was a rough week all over the world. We hope our listeners are staying safe and finding hope for positive change amid all the despair. I was going to play a song about werewolves this week, but Eric and I were working on this horror at sea track called Going Down, uh, just as things were going down. And this suddenly seemed like a much more appropriate song for us to play. So, folks, if you're interested in grabbing up the album when it's released, please get on our mailing list by emailing pitchblackmanner at gmail.com. Uh, that's all we got for now. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. And this is Going Down from the forthcoming album Monster Classics by Pitch Black Manor.